You're listening to the North Country Conservation Series. I am your host, Whitney Lewis, from the Coas County Conservation District. Join me as we explore local conservation-based careers in forestry, wildlife, fisheries, conservation law enforcement, soil science, agriculture, and many more. Follow along as we investigate these careers, examine relationships and impacts, reflect on the history of Coas County, and discover what conservation is and why it's truly important as we look towards the future. All right, welcome back everybody to the North Country Conservation Series. I am your host, Whitney Lewis from the Coas County Conservation District. I am joined here today with some awesome men. Andy Schaefermeyer, New Hampshire Fish and Game Biologist, Fish Biologist, thank you. Uh, Dave Falkenham from Landvest, Forester for New Hampshire and Vermont, thank you for being here. And Lieutenant, excuse me, retired L Lieutenant Wayne Saunders from New Hampshire Fish and Game, also Operation Game Thief and Warden's Watch podcast superstar. Thank you guys for joining me today. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Awesome. Again. Thank you. So we will be covering some conservation-based questions. If you didn't hear the, our introduction with these men, please check it out. Now we're going to get a little more in-depth with conservation. We will start off with Dave. Can you please explain to me the importance of a forestry management plan? Yeah, so a, a management plan largely is what I'm acting on every, every day. And, and basically what it is, you take any landowner. They can own 10 acres, they get hundreds of thousands of acres. You collect a certain amount of data in the field. You're in the field, you collect you map data, um, tree data, wildlife data. That What you collect sort of revolves around what their objectives are. Mm -hmm. And then you do a cruise or, you, or an inventory of, of all the resources on their property. The trees, the wildlife, the fish. You know, it's not, I'm not counting deer. Uh, we are doing statistical sampling of, of, of trees. Um, but we're noting wildlife tracks and what good wildlife habitat there is and so forth. And also keeping in mind what their objectives are. Maybe they are very wildlife-centric. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're more in it for timber management, for revenue, and so forth. And then you bring all this back to, and you literally write a plan, a, 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 a guidance document with maps and objectives and, and how you can take each part of the forest and do something with it to meet their objectives some for some people it may be nothing at all um for others and you may find things you often do that they didn't think of you may find an incredible trout stream on their property that they knew was there but didn't really realize the value of it until you looked at it with your eyes and, and knowing what i know having worked with these different people um and, and through my career and say whoa this is this is something special maybe we want to talk the fishing game about this is this something you want to highlight um, and then taking that plan and kind of putting it into action so the plan gives you that guidance you might have timber sales <clears throat> it provides a very nice map so that if you do do timber sales um, you know you're, you're doing them properly you're doing them in places you should be doing them staying out of places you shouldn't be in um, and then it also gives if they want to do timber sales when's the best time to do it summer winter uh, a little bit of both um, and it just helps guide them because they look at their land and they're like, oh, I like to walk on my land. And then it's your job to say, you have all these things um, and we can do this. And right. what are your objectives? Awesome. Um, and for many of them, you always say money's not important. Well, sometimes it is. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, and help them maybe 
you know, realize the highest potential from their land. Awesome. Thank you. That was a great explanation. <laughs> Andy, so I know everyone in Coas and the Fish and Game Office are very, very close. Could you, I know you specialize in fisheries, but could you also please speak about our moose population? What's going on with our moose population in Coas right now? Sure, sure. And uh, you introduced that very well. I'm not Thank by you. any stretch uh, the moose expert in our state, uh, but uh, I've been around um, pr pretty much for the, the, the cycle of this moose population that we're currently observing. Uh, I'll start at the beginning, and that it was basically like before the, you know, early 80s here in, in New Hampshire, we, we didn't have many moose. Um, they, they really kind of burst on the scene um, around that time, uh, and it was the direct result of uh, land management and land use. Uh, it had a lot to do with forestry practices. Uh, it had a lot to do with, uh, you know, the trickle-down uh, environmental conditions that exist that changed. Um, in, a, in a nutshell, habitat was suddenly created for, for moose. Um, and in a lot of ways, they quickly became a symbol uh, probably because they're such a large animal, but they really became a symbol of New Hampshire wildlife. I mean, almost immediately uh, they showed up on signs and billboards, and now they're on our license plates. Uh, so mm -hmm. they're, they're an iconic creature for sure. Uh, but what happened basically was uh, the, the population kind of exploded. Um, and b because they hadn't existed in, in high densities prior to that, mm -hmm. it's not a surprise to scientists. Uh, habitat was there, food sources were there, um, and so they, they responded. You know, they had high reproductive rates. Uh, you know, animals were, were long-lived and large. Um, but that, that was never really put in check. So very, very quickly, the, the number of moose, the, the moose population, got too big for its britches. And uh, there, there, wasn't, there, there were too many animals for the limited habitat that they were occupying. So they responded in a way that any organism would uh, and, and that's usually, uh, like I said, decreased reproductive rates, decreased reproductive success, uh, and, and susceptibility to disease. Mm. Uh, so w when, when we talk about the plight of the current moose population, uh, it's easy to think that it's winter ticks. Because mm -hmm. when, when the moose die, they're often covered with, with winter ticks. Yeah, it's awful. And in reality, you know, winter ticks do, you know, they, they eviscerate these animals, um, However, you know, the, the tick is sort of like a secondary uh, variable. Uh, it, it basically, like I said, too many, pop, too, too many organisms um, sharing the same limited resources, something's going to give. Mm -hmm. So for about the last, um, I don't know, 10 years or so, we, we've definitely seen our moose herd decline. Uh, we've initiated quite a few studies into why. Uh, it's, it's not something that's specific to New Hampshire. It's taking place all over the country. Um, and, you know, a, a lot can be blamed, not blamed necessarily, a lot, uh, the climate change can be pointed to, uh, moose are a cold weather animal. When, uh, summer temperatures get much above 70, these animals shut down. They're not comfortable, mm -hmm. you know, walking around in 90 degrees. I don't um, blame them. They're, they're much more comfortable in the snow. Um, and although it may not seem like it, you know, our, our winters are getting shorter. Uh, the snowpack is getting less. Um, and as a result, you know, the moose numbers are decreasing. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, it, it's nothing that's totally unexpected, and, and we're seeing it in a lot of other parts of the country, uh, including New England. So the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department's kind of responded by, like I said, initiating quite a bit of research 
Um, and excitingly, that involved radio tagging adult animals, mm-hmm. uh, which was is, which is as cool as it gets, man, jumping out of helicopters and tackling moose and putting collars on them. Um, and, and then the real work begins of following these animals, finding their seasonal habitat preferences, and, and studying their, their lifespan, their survival, and their mortality. Mm-hmm. And it was determined, you know, pretty quickly uh, that, that, you know, the, the decrease in the moose population it wasn't just perceived it was genuinely happening uh cows were giving birth to fewer calves you know because mm-hmm. of the, because of a smaller body weight uh and calf mortality was was really really high much higher than we thought so whereas in the past you know uh, a 900 pound cow would give birth to to two calves and they would have a, a you know a high survival rate it's exactly the opposite now uh, you know cows rarely exceed 400 pounds they give birth to one calf and calf mortality rates are up near 75 percent so mm-hmm. that that's a that's a downhill that's a losing battle absolutely um fortunately you know we, we also responded uh you know with our moose hunt you know we decreased the number of permits that are allowed um and the moose population appears to be reaching something of an equilibrium right now mm-hmm. uh basically what what that means is there's the appropriate number of animals for the for the habitat that exists mm-hmm. uh there aren't too many animals there aren't too few animals uh they, they seem to be getting close to reaching an equilibrium um and, and it's good because obviously it's more it's more of a natural ecology uh but our, our understanding of them is much greater too we really got forced to study these animals really hard in a short period of time absolutely and uh, we feel like uh, we feel like we have a good uh, scientific knowledge of, of what makes them tick. Absolutely. Thank you for explaining that. Sure. I know I get a lot of questions. People are like, what's going on with our moose population? And even when I was, I'm not that old, but when I was younger, you know, I used to drive up to Errol on Route 16 and, you know, beautiful habitat, all kinds of moose everywhere. You could see one morning I'd see 16 moose heading yeah. to work to Errol. And now you go, if you see one, it's like, oh my gosh. Absolutely. The, the heyday of uh, New Hampshire's moose population has kind of come and gone in that respect. Absolutely. Yeah, Thank you for explaining it. Sure. Um, awesome. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm going to put you back on the spot again because we've talked about, about moose, and I know I kind of would like you to talk a little bit more about, about fish. So can you explain why people should not introduce fish from one body of water into another body of water? Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's a pretty easy answer. Uh, basically... The natural world exists and functions because of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years of, of coexistence. Um, call it evolution if you want. But, but basically, e- ecology is formed by a million puzzle pieces that fit very, very delicately together. Uh, and if, if it's upset on either end, you know, things get thrown into a little bit of chaos. So moving fish from a water body where they currently exist to a water body where they don't exist introduces a new variable into a, an ecological system that the, the consequences are unknown. You know, the consequences could be minimal, but they could be disastrous. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of the reason people move fish around is because it, it's a sport fishing uh, desire. They, they want to catch a specific f- species of fish in a water body that's either closer to home or one of their favorites or or just one that they think this would be a great place to catch northern pike for example for a long period of time northern pike were moved around uh they're they're fast growing very aggressive very popular game fish uh and so what we call bucket biologists determined that they wanted those opportunities in more areas so you know northern pike were frequently moved around we see it a lot with panfish now too like black crappie and things Mm -hmm. like that 
but like I said, the, uh, the, the long-term ecological consequences are usually disastrous. Uh, when, when a fish like a northern pike, it, it's a top-tier predator. You know, it has really no, not many natural enemies of its own, but it, it can decimate those species that exist below it in the food chain. And okay. that's exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's why we certainly discourage it. That's why it's actually unlawful to do. Um, in fact, what not many people know, but it's, uh, you can't be in possession of live fish now in New Hampshire. It's against the law. Okay. So, you know, and, and that's to prevent people from putting a fish in a cooler and moving it to another spot. Mm-hmm. There are exceptions, you know, in bass tournaments, uh, anglers are allowed to keep live fish and bring them into the weigh-in and release them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, by definition, that kid at a boat launch with a yellow perch swimming around in a bucket, it, it, that's an unlawful act, you know. If you, if you want to possess a fish, you have to kill it. Mm-hmm. For, and it's just designed to prevent the problems that I just described. Awesome. Thank you for explaining it. I think that's yeah. really important for listeners to know and, and understand for Absolutely. sure. I get the sense it doesn't happen as frequently as it used to. I think fish used to get moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and may, maybe I have my faith in humanity is too high. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think people are doing it as frequently as they used to. That's good. Yeah. That's good. We like the positive outlook. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Sure. Um, Wayne, in the introduction, we talked a little bit about Operation Game Thief. Um, would you mind explaining a little more about what area and what animals do you see the most action? Like, what do you get the most calls for? You know, it looks like our seacoast gets the most calls, actually, considering striped bass is a... Really? Yeah. It's a wicked resource that comes and goes. It's a migratory fish that comes up our coast, comes in our waterways, and then we have size limits, slot limits, and there's a lot of regulations surrounding them, whether it's in state or federal waters. So, Mm -hmm. and one of the, the biggest calls we get is probably a length limit when people see that people are catching undersized fish, they'll, they'll make a call on Operation Game Thief, mm-hmm. which is great, you know, and the, the 800 number, if you're in New Hampshire or anywhere, as long as it's a New Hampshire violation, 1-800-344-4262. So, and you can find that, uh, it's on your license, your hunting license, if you're a hunter, or your fishing license, if mm-hmm. you're a fisherman or woman. Uh, it's right there, so th- there's always, and you can always Google it too, or go to the, the, the department website, uh, it's always there. And if you're, you know, an angler or a hunter or something, just put it in your contacts, Operation Game Thief, so it's always there that you can make that call when you need to, because you just never know, and something can happen quick, and you'll be like, hey, that guy's filling his cooler with short striped bass. So you call the Operation Game Thief number, you report it, you give a description of the person, the description of the cooler, what the violation is, he has, he's driving a blue van, he's loading five coolers in the back of his truck, it's Massachusetts plate, blah, 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 blah. You know, the more specific information you get, the better ammunition you give that officer to A, find the violation, mm-hmm. and to engage that person and come up with the violation and then be able to prosecute it as well. So, and we, if you want to remain anonymous, we can keep you anonymous because awesome. you just give us all that information to do that. So, but, and it works for everything. Um, we had, we had Elvers were a big thing for a while and they may become mm-hmm. a big thing again. And then another migratory, uh, eel i wouldn't even call it a fish what i did an eel is an eel is an eel which is a fish which is okay so yeah. an eel is a fish yeah. see i, I, w- I would have called it yeah. an eel perfect thank fish. you for clarifying <laughs> <laughs> it's not as if you're incorrect <laughs> 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 oh. 
So, you know, with, with everything, with moose violations, with deer violations, uh, during the, the fall we get a lot of hunting regulation calls, uh, mm -hmm. trespass, uh, too many deer, wrong deer, uh, things like that. Sometimes uh, divorces uh, come up with some great information. Yeah, my husband sh shot this one this time, that one, this one, you know. So uh, that's something in a divorce that may come out. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so you, you just never know. But that that's what it is. It's it's an avenue. And the other thing with Operation Game Thief is we show our successes. We have an Operation Game Thief trailer. We drag around the state. And it's to show our successes as far as investigating crimes. It has a lot of uh, wildlife in it, uh, taxidermy, deer, fish, turtles, bears, moose. We put it all in there so we can tell you that we're working hard and these are actually cases that we're putting together. And it's because of the information that we get from Operation Game Thief, it's possible. And you know, there's only so many game wardens in New Hampshire. There's about 40 game wardens in New Hampshire. We're down from the, the 1970s. You know, there was about 50 game wardens there. Oh, wow. So we're getting more responsibilities and less people. So the more eyes and ears that we have out there to tell us what's going on, is it benefits the wildlife, the resource, it benefits the whole thing, and it streamlines it. So Wayne Saunders or whoever, Officer Lucas is out there, he's not specifically looking for that. He's being, you know, directed where to go for these violations. Yeah. Because if we're just out there looking, we're, we're you know, they, it's said that only 1% of poaching is detected. Wow. That's 1%. If you can give you an idea on... Yeah, and that's, that's, it just blows my mind, too, that we only detect 1% of poaching. Mm. So, And that was based out of a study done in New Mexico or Arizona. But they actually created crime scenes, wildlife crime scenes, and see to see who wow. would report them. Wow. So and Interesting. Yeah, interesting, exactly. They created a fake crime scene using deer or whatever roadkill they had, but they would make it so it was a visible crime scene and see how many it got reported, and they figure about 1% of poaching violations nationwide oh my goodness. gets reported. That's so crazy. Thank it, you for giving us wow. a little more insight wow. on that. Mm. Wow, yeah. definitely. Great. Thank you for sharing mm. that. Dave, I have a question for you now. So if someone were to cut trees on another person's land without permission, is that considered a crime? They were poaching those trees. <laughs> they were poaching those trees. Okay. All right. Call Operation Game Thief. <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. It is a crime. It's called timber theft. Okay. Um, the uh, New Hampshire is very well set up to deal with this sort of thing. They have the forest rangers. who off People often think of the forest rangers as people manning the towers and, and, and firefighting, but it also they enforce <coughs> timber harvesting law, mm -hmm. deceptive forestry practices. So um, trees are many things to all of us. They mean all sorts of things um, that are not often easy to quantify. Trees are also worth money. And that's fairly easy to quantify, or it can be quantified. Yep. Um, but if you cut a tree down, you can sell it. You know, that's where the, the wood for these tables came from and so forth. They go to a sawmill, they get sawed up or turned into paper. Um, so trees are worth money. Um, so if you own land with trees on it, you have, you know, the opportunity for income mm -hmm. on your land. And that's one of the things we talk about in management plans. You know, maybe how much the land is worth or how much money they might be able to, if to make if we cut say maybe a third of their timber or something mm -hmm. um so trees are worth money it's a little cold-hearted it's a little cold you're gonna think you know but they are um so if if i steal if i come across your boundary line or anybody's boundary line and, and cut their trees and take them i have stolen income opportunity from you hmm, um, interesting it's one way to look at it so the forest rangers enforce that um 
this is why it's important we lecture it's important to have your boundary lines marked because <laughs> it makes it very easy when investigating a crime such as that mm -hmm. if i mean this is pretty straightforward it's 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 easy to say i walked into your house and stole your whatever or mm -hmm. i stole your car that's registered in your name and has you know your serial numbers and so forth on or your vin numbers if your boundary lines aren't there and very often this happens they don't even the person cutting wasn't was not aware um, because the boundary line wasn't there and the person he's cutting for wasn't clear on where it should be. So that's why those sorts of things, why a management plan is important because it, you can tell where the boundaries are. You can mark the boundaries with paint, physically paint the boundaries. Okay. Um, but if, if you don't, they can go across and cut, and when they're charged, trees. Dave, it's 10 times the amount of value that they get charged with. It always blew my mind. Correct. What? Um, yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. yeah. I've, been, I've been to court. The only court cases I've been in um, were for timber theft. Uh, oh, and, and some other timber harvesting laws. Right. But, but theft was, was one of them. Theft is the big one. Mm -hmm. And it's very often because um, I can go, I can walk up to a tree knowing what markets are and so forth, measure it, get a general sense of, how many board feet are in it and give yeah. you a rough sense of what this one it's you don't, don't ever work on a tree by tree basis but i can tell you how much this is worth well in timber theft the tree is gone the tree is no longer there the tree is down the road it's mm -hmm. been cut and removed so you have a stump you're yeah. working with so now you have to extrapolate from that stump what it was based on the trees around you and some crazy you know math and so forth <laughs> magic math magic math um, i like that term magic math <laughs> and try to determine because if you're going to charge 10 times amount you got to know what the original amount was worth right Absolutely. Um, so and you, you need a guy like <coughs> dave to tell the judge that value and i had a court case right. once with an illegal tree stand on champion land i mean that's going way back mm -hmm. but you never ask a question the, as a prosecutor that you don't know the answer to. I, I learned that the hard way because um, <laughs> I asked the value of a tree, and it was a pulp tree. This guy had put a tree stand illegally on champion land and, and had cut several trees to, to get to his bear bait so he could shoot clearly. Ooh. So, And I won the case, and now we were assessing a, a value on those trees. And, yeah, I, I, when it was $20, I, I just got uh, – the judge just looked at me, so what? And I just uh, – I should have known the value of those trees prior to mm -hmm. because they were pulp. They were junk trees that he cut. There was really no value in them. Right. Um, but then you get a veneer tree. Yeah. yeah a veneer what's, maple what's, or a veneer oak. Yeah. And it's, you know, thousands. Thousands. And then multiply that times 10. Right. There's a $10,000 <laughs> fine right there. The other there. thing that's important, too, is maybe it's not worth it. Some huge trees are not worth that much money. Mm. They're not. You, they don't have a straight limb on them. You can't make a board out of them. They're not worth that much money. But, boy, it might mean a lot to you. <clears throat> that might be the most beautiful tree on your property in your mind. Ooh. I come over. I cut it down. Now what are we working with? What are we working with? Well, it's right. not worth much money, so... Here's your ten bucks. Sorry about your tree. Oh boy. <laughs> um, wow. And yet, yeah, you're really upset about it. So they can go to. They can take that civilly. They can take that to another level. But that's fortunately, I don't get involved with that because I'm more involved with how much is that tree worth, mm. dollar wise. Absolutely. Um, but yes, the bottom line, it is absolutely a crime, and there are um, 
programs and enforcement officials in place in New Hampshire to enforce that law. Awesome. Thank you for explaining that. I think that's something not other, you know, maybe people don't know. So thank you for telling our, our listeners. That 10 times amount always just blew my mind that, you know, it's yeah. if you go over and cut that tree, you, you're paying 10 times the value of it. And yeah. That's like, crazy. Don't cut and, people's veneer. And in the veneer. tree stand case, you're <laughs> talking a few trees, but I mean, there's right. been times when you have 10 acres of stumps. Oh, yes. I've measured 10 acres of stumps before. It's not fun. Um, no. Because there's usually brush and all kinds of mud and stuff. It's often not, wasn't done in the most savory conditions. This was not a great person who did this. Mm. Like we know the people who are, you know, breaking the He's, law. They're thieves. Are not doing this. So they might have done it really quick. They might have been in and out in a night. There's ruts, there's mud, there's all kinds of mess. You have a bunch of muddy stumps now. You have to you pick up the pieces and try to pick up out. the pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and between the forest rangers and the forester involved, try to put together a case and then you know we do go to court as witnesses um mm. wow and, and one time i ever been in court was for so it's timber laws wow wow well thank they're, you they're so very much. good witnesses too because they're experts in their field yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. really got to know everything the mm-hmm. ins and outs of every tree every species the problem is we thing. usually know the person who did it too so <laughs> <laughs> sitting across the room from us like <laughs> well we do live in like, Comas county sorry, where buddy. we know pretty much everybody <laughs> but you knew better and that's what it is you knew better than doing yeah, that for sure so, um, <laughs> but yeah that is your lens different than what you know you know, some of the game laws and so forth. That's a, the game is the the property of the state, the people of the state. If I cut your tree, that's your yours tree. You're the landowner for sure. So yeah, thank you for clarifying that. I I appreciate it. So um, and Andy, I know with pretty much actually all you guys actually, but I'm gonna pick on Andy right now just because you're my favorite person. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that hurt. <laughs> Sorry, guys. So Sorry. Uh, when it comes to conservation, if, if anyone has a job or a career in conservation, you're going to be out in the field. you got to stay fit. So tell me what you do to stay fit and in shape. It oh. is fit. At, at this point in my life, I do nothing to stay fit. <laughs> uh, this point? Yeah. I mean, there was a time. Uh, 15 years ago, I don't remember much happening. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, cer- it's certainly seasonal. Uh, in, in the spring, summer, and fall, you know, we, we are – outside you know moving all the time um you know my my typical january day involves uh more office time that i'd like a little bit more coffee you know poor eating habits uh it gets dark at 4 30 uh it's just harder to to get exercise so luckily like you said the job itself because you know my, my love for the job sort of it doesn't make it seem like you're you're doing anything you don't want to do. So mm-hmm. if you're hiking around all day, uh, and that's more often than not, it means carrying a heavy backpack. Uh, it just it, it happens naturally without you really becoming aware of it. Uh, but as far as like like exercise programs and stuff, I coach high school baseball. So for three oh, months, oh nice, I didn't know that. Yeah, cool. Three months out of the year, uh, I'm trying to work harder than my players. I, I like to tease them that the old guys out running them and stuff like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's I'm not as successful as I used to be. Uh, I can't, you know, I can't out sprint a high school senior like I used to. <laughs> uh, but l- like you said, luck- luckily the job does most of it. And I'm sure these guys would say the same thing. For sure. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. Sure. (laughs) I had to put you on the spot Uh, a little bit. No, it's all right. (laughs) Uh, Wayne, so I understand that you are a 4-H club leader. So you have a 4-H club. Um, Mm -hmm. I recently just started one. We're trying to get it going. COVID's a little challenging, but um, I definitely want to hear. Tell tell us about your 4-H club. Yeah, so it's Coas County Canines. So, and it's a dog club. 
And I grew up in 4-H, and I showed dogs in 4-H. So it, it kind of gave me a love of dogs, and it gave me a love of 4-H for sure. So all my trophies in my basement, my son always saw those growing up, and he decided he wanted to get into showing dogs and doing what Dad did. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, it, it's sweet, and, and it's great to start a club, and it's great to take a setback. Remember, it's not Wayne that's showing the dog. It's not about Wayne. It's about Andrew. Mm -hmm. And that's a different thing, especially when you're trying to live through your son at this point, you know, <laughs> and he wants a German wire hair pointer. He doesn't want a German shepherd like you've always had. So that's, <laughs> that, that's a real, you know, we all have our, uh, our breeds of dogs. Like yeah. Dave have his, you know, mm -hmm. labs and I've always had shepherds. And I will say getting a German wire hair pointer has opened my eyes to a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And just opening my eyes to 4-H too and the, the kids' involvement, COVID, I, I shot down during COVID. There's no doubt about it. I tried to do some Zoom meetings and stuff, and uh, it just didn't seem to work mm -hmm. uh, because 4-H is so hands-on, so engaging. Absolutely. Uh, some people think it's animal-related, and it really isn't. You can do so much in 4-H. There's leadership skills you can do, 4-H mm -hmm. uh, Congress, 4-H uh, Adventures. Um, there's, there's all kinds of things. It's not it, When you think 4-H, you think of cows, horses, chickens, maybe dogs, but even dogs. Dogs sometimes is excluded and they don't think mm -hmm. of dogs because uh, a lot of people have dogs and to have that in interaction with your dog through 4-H and getting support so you can see what the different breeds were made for, what the different breeds entail. My son's better at uh, identifying breeds than I am now. It's wow. great, and we play That's this awesome. game everywhere we go. <laughs> yeah. We play this game. If I, you know, I have any question, you know, it's not. We don't do it with labs, Dave. I'm sorry, but you know, what, what <laughs> kind of dog is that? Easy. You know, and it's a Siberian Husky versus uh, an Alaskan Malamute. Oh, um, I love those dogs. So, yeah, so we, we we have a lot of fun with it, and uh, ho hopefully, COVID here will get kicked off in the spring, and we'll start charging ahead. But I have been Absolutely. slacking in the last year, but uh, it's it's you know, it's giving back. It's having the time to give back now that I'm retired. Mm -hmm. Although I'm finding I'm. Uh, I'm jamming up for a lot of different things now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably going to be more busy than you were before. <laughs> I always heard that. I never believed it. Now I believe it. Yeah. Yep. Um. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Maybe yeah. once COVID's kind of done and passed, I would love to have my 4-H club and your 4-H club Absolutely. get together. Absolutely. I think that would be wonderful. Yeah. And, and you know, getting out to the people of Cost County, we have a lot of active 4-H uh, groups. Uh, you started one. Uh, Jesse Tishy's starting one. Yeah. We're um, working together. Oh, you actually. are? Okay. Yeah. So it's great. That's yeah. awesome. So that's, you know, that's what you need. Those grassroots things to startup that we can reach our rural area mm -hmm. uh, and then again it's not all about uh, you know it's about arts and crafts it's about engaging in people it's about public speaking mm -hmm. which I will say I think we need to emphasize in this next generation because a lot of it is digital 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 and with yep. COVID we just put digital to the 10th degree mm -hmm. um, and we need to do this interpersonal stuff even though we're at a distance mm -hmm. this is great there's nothing like podcasting in person because mm -hmm. you can read body language. I can see chat in the background going cut, 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 <laughs> things like that. Uh, when you're even on Zoom, I mean, it's nice to see people at a distance. My partner's in Montana or California. And, and we get, you know, some awesome guests from around the country because of that type of thing. But it's not the same. It's not. We Humans are made to do this type of thing. We are made to be around each other. Absolutely. I have, I have just determined that through COVID and other things. And I've been just watching Alone lately. Have you ever watched that TV show Alone? I've wanted to, but I haven't got into it. Man, I, I have, I've been, I, I never binge watched anything in my life. And it's the stupidest thing in the world. But to, to look at human, you know, needing another human. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know if that show brings that out enough because you can see that they they really need human. That is part of us. 
Absolutely. So, and COVID has taken that away, which is, uh, I think it just shows us how much how much more we need each other. Absolutely. So, and um, appreciate each other more, for it, sure. Exactly. And 4-H brings that, that, that's what 4-H used to do, is bring all that together. And they, they really got, like all of us, we, we got really kicked. And uh, I, I'm hoping to get it back together and even stronger than we had before, because now we have that realization that, hey, this is good, this interaction is good, and then to work with an animal, especially a dog. I mean, let's face it. Let's face it. You know, it's, <laughs> you can't beat yeah. a dog. Uh, although no. I point out to my son how smart a German Shepherd is compared to a German wire hair pointer, <laughs> but um, Shepherds just have a tendency to think. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. My uh, Andy can attest he's, he's actually uh, – He's, he's sat, a dog sat for me before, and I came home. Oh, and all that's of a sudden, so sweet. My dog jumped on me and put his paws right up on my shoulder, and I was like, yeah, my dog's well-behaved. Yeah. <laughs> and sure. Andy's sitting over there. You should see the look on his face. You know, a podcast, you can't see the look on his face, but he is like, uh, yeah. I, I might have done that. <laughs> Sorry about that. Aww. Yeah, so he trained him really quick on uh, how to how to greet him. He liked the hogs. And <laughs> oh, that's so cute. Easy to retrain, I hope. Yeah, he was easy to retrain, <laughs> yeah. no doubt. But uh, <laughs> before you know, he's going to be on the couch sitting next to oh, you, sure laying in bed with I, you. I'm sure he was. I'm there not going to no comment doubt. on that. Nope. I'm a sucker for that. Yeah. I'm so bad oh. with my lab. My my husband and I, you know, my husband did very good with with training him to be a very good dog, and he is. But for me, I just oh, come on up, come on the couch, come lay on mommy. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then your husband Sorry. comes home and sits down. And he jumps in his lap. It's a different story, isn't that, it? Yes, it's a different yeah. story. <laughs> it's like, what have you been doing with our dog? <laughs> oh. Oh, thank you. Well, that's awesome. I'm looking looking forward to it for sure. Um, so on kind of also with we've had COVID going on. Also, we had a drought going on this summer. And Dave, what can you tell me about how did this drought affect our summer? How did it affect the forest? Did it affect the tree farmers? Tell me more about this. That's that's an interesting question, and it, it's it's a little challenging to interest to answer. It, it, if you think of forest, forests have been down around for thousands, millions of years, millions of years. They have dealt with everything: droughts, fires, floods, really wet years, you know, super wet years, really dry years. So, diseases and and insects and all sorts of things. So, there's very seldom any one thing that is going to affect trees can take on a lot. Uh, they they really are very durable. Um, they can lose their leaves, grow them back. They can get completely defoliated and grow them back. Um, so in the case of something like the forest tent caterpillar, which we had um, many years ago, um, or not many, recently, um, there was widespread defoliation, and the thought was, hey, it's natural, it occurs, it happens. But what happens is when you take drought and put that in the picture as well mm -hmm. now you have or drought this year you might actually see the effects next year so you had a drought this year next year something might happen like a forest pest come along mm -hmm. and normally the forest could just sort of shrug that off their shoulders like yeah you know i lost some leaves big deal i grow them back right it had the drought now it might not be able to respond as quickly um so it's very hard to say what are we seeing immediately now. Um, you're seeing, you know, you might have more opportunities for forest fires. Um, right. You know, log. I'm in the business of, of logging, so you had to kind of watch. You'd be a little bit concerned about, you know, fires start. That's very likely where a fire could start from a spark or something on a, right. on a logging job. So you had to be really super cautious about that. Um, but 
forests are so resilient they really can i think what's probably in people's memories or minds is the most recent forest tent caterpillar defoliation where the whole you know off hillsides just just gone and we thought oh it's just a natural thing it'll it grows back and then all of a sudden it was not going as well as we thought but when you start adding up what else happened well there was a drought and so on and so forth so the concern with a drought is that if something else comes along mm -hmm. um you've now lost the forest has lost its re resiliency right or or its resiliency has been compromised, maybe not lost it. I don't think a force ever loses resiliency, but it's been compromised. It's kind of like your immune so system becoming compromised. Kind of like your immune system. Um, you know, you can be around sick people, your, your immune system, you know, fends things off, fends things off, fends things off. And it can only take so much. Mm -hmm. And then you go a week of high stress for whatever reason, work, personal relationship, you don't sleep, then you get sick. Yep. And you, your immune system could have kept doing that all day long but now you didn't sleep for a week um or maybe the maybe the eight kids kept you up or, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, oh boy, or the new I puppy bet. had you know had you up all night you know having to go outside um so you didn't sleep but that's not stress that's actually fun oh but um but the big thing with drought is to remember is that it's really it, it's going to compromise what the forest can handle so as long as nothing else comes along it should be okay it should be fine you okay. should be fine. Think about how long our forests have been around and what Very they've true. what they've tolerated. Very um, true. They've they've you know they we're talking you know the White Mountain National Forest was completely clear cut with fires and everything else. There's there's miles and miles of trees now. So in the Northeast we have very resilient forests, oh. but it's all those little things that add up and then one more thing hits it and yeah. drought is that is how drought will affect a forest. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. And and on the topic of drought, Andy, I mean, you work with fish, you work with water. What can you tell me about the summer? Do you see any any effects from from the drought yeah, this summer? Sure, I would uh, I would mirror you know Dave's ideas about uh, the the resiliency of of nature, and that is uh, obviously fish have been evolving and and have been a their whole lot their whole existence they've been dealing with varying water conditions some years that's drought some years it's flood uh so anything so so in a strange way they are prepared now it may seem like the impact would be greater with fish because that's you know that's the medium in which they live uh and it's true uh but if, if there's one thing i learned you know if one of many things i've learned and, and this one specifically from following fish with radio tags in them is that they 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 can almost sense you know water conditions when when things are getting low or when things are reaching temperatures that's not their preferred temperature zone they move you know uh, a, a fish isn't going to sit there uh, and die you know they, they they recognize the trends and again how they do it i'm not i'm not entirely sure um but but one of the most important abiotic factors in a fish's life is temperature. Uh, you know, trout like cold water, uh, bass like warm water, but it doesn't matter. They have preferred temperature zones, and, and those temperatures are, are guide their whole life cycle. It, it tells them when to spawn. It tells, you know, eggs when to hatch. Temperature is that important. So when we see a drought like we did this summer, uh, it hit really hard in June. And water levels st obviously started to drop. You know, all of a sudden mm -hmm. there was no more snow melt, you know, infusing our yep. waterways. And one of the more immediate results was that temperatures rose. So, you know, the, the brook trout responded. They, they, in a way, saw it coming. You know, they rarely hunker down and hope things get better. You know, they, when it's a life or death decision, they're on it. Right. Um, so mo most of the 
you know, cold water fish in New Hampshire, those that would have been most susceptible to problems from the drought this year, recognized it and they moved on. Um, I will also mirror Dave's sentiment in that, uh, you know, <laughs> well, well, a, a lot of these are intertangled, you know, they uh, are, absolutely. Pr principles of nature. Um, the, the drought itself, you know, fish are equipped to deal with it, uh, but it certainly created stressful situations. And when a fish is living a stressful existence, it makes it more susceptible to disease, for example, or mm. in a lot of ways more susceptible to predation. Absolutely. You know, if a fish is, is alive, but the water is, is you know, it's half the volume, right. uh, other organisms are going to take advantage of that. And so, so like Dave said, uh, the drought on its own, it wasn't ideal, uh, but fish are prepared to deal with it. But if it were coupled with other factors, especially, you know, negative factors, it, it would have a, a big impact, you know, on the health of fish. Um, and, and it wasn't terrible this year. We, we saw waterways get low. I didn't see many go completely dry. I did see That's some. Good. But uh, one, one of the more important things in a fish's life, too, is uh, a term called connectivity. And that basically means a fish has access to whatever it needs at whatever point in its life cycle. You know, yeah. fish move. Uh, they migrate. Uh, they need to be able to get to those places. Uh, they, they can't live in, in a finite system. Um, and that's actually one of the biggest challenges for, <laughs> for unsuccessful fishermen to, to grasp. Fish are, need to be in different places at different times. Uh, and if you understand that, then, then you're a better fisherman, probably a better hunter too. Um, so so the, <laughs> drought this, the drought this year <laughs> limited, limited fish from getting to places that they needed to be. Did it kill them? No. Uh, not in every sense, uh, circumstance, uh, but it definitely limited their movement. Mm -hmm. so. Wow. Well, thank you for explaining that. Sure. Awesome. Yep. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. Wayne, I know there's lots of layers to New Hampshire fish, fishing game. And when you're a conservation officer, there is a chain of command. Can you explain those layers in that chain of command, please? Right. And with any organization, there's usually a layer of supervision. It's We, we consider, you know, fishing game, state police, other their paramilitary type of uh, environments to work in. Mm -hmm. So we have a hierarchy, usually starts off with a conservation officer one. So okay. I, and I'll, I'll even go before that trainee. So the you training. get hired okay. as a trainee your first year, you're a trainee um, and you travel all around the state learning the job as a conservation officer and you get evaluated by field training officers during yep. that first year. After that you're assigned your, to your first patrol uh, and you become a conservation officer one. So for the first 10 years, and if you okay. haven't been promoted within that 10 years, which you could be promoted to sergeant within that first 10 years, you go to a conservation officer two, mm -hmm. which is basically gives you a little more responsibility. You've been on 10 years. You should know your job. So it, it's, it's kind of an upgrade. Right. Within that, within that 10 years or after that 10 years, you could become a sergeant. Uh, and then after that, a lieutenant. And the lieutenant's kind of like a, a police chief. He uh, runs an area mm -hmm. and... You know, I had up to eight guys underneath me. Uh, we have a sergeant that has collateral duties. So he has a patrol. Mm -hmm. He also, and I'll say the sergeant's probably the hardest job within New Hampshire fishing game because he has really? a patrol. He has ev all the responsibilities as the officer does normally. Plus he has supervisory re responsibilities. So mm -hmm. when I, when the lieutenant is gone, the sergeant steps in and acts as the lieutenant. He makes those decisions as the lieutenant. Plus okay. he's responsible for training and equipment of the district. 
Okay. So being a sergeant's wow. a, a very tough job. Absolutely. Lots of responsibilities. So yeah. who for, for Coas County, who would be our the sergeant for fishing game? Glenn Lucas is the current sergeant. Okay. So awesome. Sergeant Lucas and then Mark Ober is the lieutenant. So that's the supervisory. Uh, we have the nice thing is we have a lot of CO2s. Uh, Matt Holmes, Chris Egan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, very capable guys that if one of those people aren't available, they step in and then they, they take on those responsibilities awesome. as, as well. And then from there, we go down to Concord. Uh, we have an administrative lieutenant position down there, a captain, a major, and a colonel, one of which, you know, there's only one position each. Wow. So, and you basically, you know, you, you uh, if they want to do something in your district, they call out to you. Uh, they set up the administration functions of it, uh, mm-hmm. the state stuff that you have to follow, and then you have to relay it back to the, the guys in the field. So, um, wow, lots of layers there. There, there is lots of layers, and it, it works very well. Um, it works extremely well, especially in the North Country, uh, because we have such a search and rescue heavy responsibility. Absolutely. There are three lieutenants responsible for the White Mountain uh, Forest, which brings in a lot of hikers. Mm-hmm. So District 1 has Mount Washington area in it, which creates a lot of search and rescue missions. Absolutely. We, and then uh, if we go down to the Notch, uh, Pinkham Notch, that's District 3. And then you go down to Crawford Notch, that's District 2. So some of the highest area for rescues in the state of New Hampshire is actually divided among three districts. That wasn't so when I first came on. District Mm -hmm. 1 actually had uh, the Notch as well, uh, the Notch and Mount Washington, which uh, just, there was a lot. It's busy. Yes, yes. Very busy. It it wasn't sustainable. There was no way it was going to be sustainable. So it got divided up. It works very well. There's a good balance there among the, the three lieutenants that they usually can handle what they have, but there's usually something going on in one or two of those districts at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, sometimes three of the districts, and then you're looking for people, and, and that's the hard thing with search and rescue is people to conduct those. We have a lot of volunteer groups that just work so well with us, and without those volunteer groups, they couldn't do the job either. For sure. But, but that's basically the hierarchy of it. Absolutely. Thank you for explaining Mm. that. Definitely a lot of support. It sounds like you guys Mm -hmm. all support each other really well, which is great. It's it's kind of a family, no no doubt about it. I mean, you work close together. uh, You do a lot of things together. And yeah, that's the part about when you retire, you don't see the guys as much, uh, including the guys at the office. One thing that, you know, Dave keeps pointing out, and I totally agree. Uh, that office that we had that we all worked together and it, it is such a resource for us because if there's a problem in forestry, I walk down the hall and I talk to the forest rangers, I talk to Dave, I talk to Maggie. If I got a question on fish, I step out and I go talk to, to Schaefermeyer in the corner or Diane Timmons or, yep. you know, wildlife with Jill Kilborn. See, I remembered her married well name done. now. So. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it, it, it's such a resource right there because you can answer all those questions so quickly and work together because it's a really a team. Management is a team effort. It's just not one person trying to do it all. It's a group effort, and we all have the same goals in mind. So Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. And I really think that that's what makes COAS really unique is that we're all very, very close, very willing to support each other, have good connections, and I think mm. that makes it really special up here. I agree. For sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Dave, so I have a question for you. When you're out in the woods, I'm sure you use a lot of GPS, GIS skills. Mm-hmm. Is that really important with your job? How often do you actually use it? Can you tell me more about it? Absolutely, and almost every day. Every day. Oh, my <laughs> yep. goodness. And okay. It's, and it's that's <laughs> evolved from when I started. I mean, I started in, when I was in college, GIS was was a was a word that was or an acronym that was just coming on and it right. was it was an elective when I was in college. Really? Now it's absolutely now it's required. Absolutely required. It was an absolutely. elective when I was there. 
Um, I started in the Lancaster office drawing maps with pen and ink on Mylar. Um, wow. So <laughs> if anyone remembers my office in the basement, spent hours in the wintertime, you know, drawing with a pen and ink. And now it's done with a computer and you get a much higher quality right, map. Right, right, absolutely. And you get a map that, um, and I just talked specifically about the maps because that's what we use the most, a map that you can then download onto your GPS, your global positioning system, and then see on the map where you are. So if I'm laying out a timber sale, um, I know when there's a stream coming up, I know where I am, or, or if I'm putting in like patch cuts for like grouse habitat management, right? Um, and I want to disperse them on the landscape a certain way uh, to do these small, these clear cuts, and then in 10 years come back to do another age to keep different age classes on the, on the landscape. I can use, I'm using that to space myself out because you always want to plan 10 years down the road when you come to come back and cut again. It's right, sort of absolutely. very big, it's basic premise behind um, sustainable harvesting is being able to come back um, okay. at some point in time um, to cut again. And so we use it for that. Um, you know, you can see certain things coming up or you can see things as they evolve on the map. Um, but it, you know, years ago, it was kind of like, a little bit of guesswork or literally hip chaining, measuring physically, you know, with a hip chain or, or oh. with a tape between patches and so forth. And I can remember my old supervisor, Bob McGregor, and I literally measuring, you know, between patch cuts and so forth to get the distance because you want to come back again. So you don't want them to be too close um, and you want a certain wildlife habitat effect. Um, so it, it's all the time. And then you... I'm fortunate. I don't have I have good GPS skills. A lot of foresters don't have the best GIS skills because it gets very deep. It's a lot of time at a computer. You can use it for so many things. You turn on your car and there's a GPS, GIS running, GPS running on a GIS system. Um, so oh, you can cool. see yourself. It's the GPS. It's, it's the global positioning system that's putting you on the map. But the map on your screen was created using GIS skills and they're using layers of information. So it's streets or it's timber stands, um, deer habitat, grouse habitat, fisheries, high quality fishery habitat. And then you can bring those all together into a map and, and see what falls where and where junctions are um, in this data. So you may have a really high, you know, a very important you know, fishery within a, within a property, whether it's a cold water fishery or a warm water fishery. And you might have um, a high dosage of softwood that acting as a deer yard. It had a lot of deer sign in it. And you had a biologist come in and say, yes, this is definitely a deer yard. They're spending the winters here. And you can put that on a map, layer it all in there, and then you can see where all the hot spots are with the really important habitat. And, the, and then when you go to lay out your timber sale, you say, those are the habitats I want to stay away from. Right. I don't want to cross that stream because it's it's an important fishery. Okay. And I'm, I'm going to cut some of the timber in that deer yard because the, I'm working with a biologist who says that's okay. I can actually do a little bit of that and enhance that habitat. So if you have all that information on a map layered, mm -hmm. um, you can find those hot spots. So definitely um, if someone would like to... To pursue forestry, they definitely need to have the GPS GIS skills. You will get the GPS. <laughs> You'll get them. It's, it's all a requirement now. And when I was at Paul Smith's, and, and I, I still say, tell students, I mean, get a minor in GIS. Because I'm lucky in that we have GIS guys working for me. So they're doing oh. that at the computer stuff. I'm not that good at it. Um, a lot of guys just want to be in the woods. A lot of foresters like being in those. We like our GPS. We want all that information done for us. Um, <laughs> I don't so I can you. see myself on a map and I can and I can work in this deer yard or work around this stream. Um, 
there's literally organizations, Landvest, you know, and other forestry organizations such as Weyerhaeuser, who have GIS people. Okay. And it's not a half bad paying position. You spend a lot of time on a computer, but if, if you're a for in a forestry school and you have good computer skills, it's not a bad road because they need those type of people because then there's us type of people who don't really want to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, More like, simple. Or lack want, of skills. Yeah, or lack <laughs> of skills. And, you know, Andy can tell you there's so many things. And these guys, when, when we were in school, certain things were either a word and it was talked about, but it wasn't really done. And now it's like mm. you don't live without it. You Absolutely. literally don't live without it. Absolutely. Um, For sure. Wow. Yeah, I, love, I love my GIS guys because it saves me from doing a lot of things I don't want to do. <laughs> uh, but it also enables us to focus. You know, I mean, GIS yeah. can take so much of your time. Um, so they enable me and my colleagues to focus on the ground, what we're doing. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for explaining that. I really appreciate it. Um, let's see. How, how are we doing for time? We're 50 minutes in? <gasps> can I, like, skip a bunch of things and try to wrap up? <gasps> oh, my gosh, already? Um, all right, let's see. What can we cut and what can we leave it at the end here? Um, Should probably talk about easements. Yes, I'm definitely for you. I think that's definitely um, the, the, the the page that we were just on talking about fish hatcheries, I would I would think that would be important for mine. Yeah, that we'd want to end I'd with that. Schedule another day, Whitney. I'd want to keep that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> we can't afford another day. <laughs> well, I'd like to, but um, so Andy, where's yeah? Fish I'm sorry. Hatcheries? Getting back to the one, basically where we just left off okay. after Dave's GPS and GS. I just okay. That's that's a huge part of. Absolutely. Of what we do. So let's see. Um, you can get rid of like okay. what is trout unlimited. We can kill that. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking just kill maybe that. like limit it down to like one question or so each for you guys. So definitely that with you, Dave. Yep. Definitely easements. I do want to get on that. Yep. Wayne, um, I really would like to kind of definitely go over, you know, hike. I know you already talked about hiking the whites, but I mm -hmm. think going a little more in depth because there is so many hikers out there. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'd be good to go over that. I also... Um, really like talking about the ATVs because that's a huge thing that's booming and people really need to slow down. Mm. Um, so definitely, I definitely want to <laughs> talk about, about those. So I think maybe what we'll do, Andy, I'll do, um, explain your relationship <laughs> with the fish hatchery and then I'll do, um, you and know, you Dave. I want to wrap up for each one of us too. So like final thoughts or something. Okay. Maybe yeah. That's not a bad idea. Okay. I don't know. Whatever you think, Chad. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I always give the other people that at the end of their podcast time to say hey, this is my show as much as your show, your show as much as okay. my show. Because well, after sometimes you miss what they want to talk about. Yeah, that's a good point. Right, absolutely, that's a good idea. Right. So after lunch, though, we will do the reflecting on the history. So do you think like that's when we should do a full yeah. wrap up? Yeah, that's good. Okay. Um, okay. Absolutely. Even though they're standalone episodes, okay. someone should, if they're interested in one, they should listen to all three. Absolutely. That's, That's kind of what I'm like, I'm hoping. Um, marketing <laughs> ploy there. Good idea. Okay. So, yeah. So, <coughs> we'll finish up with Andy. I'll ask you that question. Excuse me, Dave. I'll ask you the question. And then Wayne will finish up with that kind of dual end question of, of hiking and um, ATVs. Mm -hmm. Do you think it would be possible to to try and call Lucas or, or Matt Holmes to let them speak about it, or is that something that maybe like right now? Well, like <laughs> <laughs> like when when oh. it, when it's your turn to talk, how Holmes I kind of like answer his phone. 
He doesn't. No, he doesn't. He's a farmer guy. Doesn't answer his phone. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and Glenn's spotty too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> if not, that's totally fine. I just yeah. threw it out there because I wasn't sure if they w- could somehow like explain their experiences for us. Well, it sounds like another podcast. Yeah. Does yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Quite the hostess. You do. Thank, thank you. I like, I like writing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so that sounds good. We'll, we'll wrap up with those last questions for you guys, and then we'll have lunch and then do reflection on history of co-ops, which will be pretty quick. Sounds great. Sounds good. Yep, excellent. You guys are good. Do you guys need? You're good. No, we're good. Ready to okay. roll. All right, let's do it. Okay. All right. Thank you, guys. So, Andy, can you explain your relationship with the Fitch? Ha- excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Cut. <laughs> Start over. Um, uh. Okay. Whew, sorry. I can't say fish, obviously. <laughs> okay. Rewind. Okay. Um, thank you, guys. Andy, would you mind explaining to me your relationship with the fish hatchery? I know that's very important. We kind of talked about it a little bit in the intro. Can you explain more to me, please? Absolutely. Uh, I'd first like to give our hatcheries uh, the shout out that they deserve. Uh, New Hampshire Fish and Game Department owns and operates six hatcheries spread out throughout the state. And 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 they're run by some of the hardest working men and women that, that, that uh, our department has. Uh, and they're just awesome. And the work is often not, not under, unappreciated, but it's not recognized enough for the work that they put in. You know, the, the 24 hour shifts that they put in. Uh, they're a great, awesome. great bunch of people. Um, at the beginning of this um, exercise here today, I mentioned that I started in a fish hatchery. The first full-time job I got out of college was at a hatchery, uh, and I absolutely loved it. Um, obviously, it allowed me to work, uh, you know, with a, with a resource that I really had a passion for. Uh, but it was it's a great combination of using your brain and using your back. It's in a lot of ways it's like running a farm. Uh, you're 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 raising uh, animals. Uh, you're tending with you're feeding them. You're cleaning them. You're you're dealing with disease. Uh, and in addition to that, you're you're cutting the grass, you're you're plowing snow, you're fixing things that break. Uh, so it's it's a really really great job. Uh, another interesting thing is uh, the the best biologists that I work with right now are those that have fish hatchery experience. Mm-hmm. So there's some skills that you develop. In a, in a hatchery that you, you really can't get anywhere else. Just mm-hmm. recognizing how healthy fish behave or how sick fish behave. Right. Um, and understanding how to move fish, you know, in volume. Um, understanding, you know, their life cycle as far as feeding, reproducing, any of that stuff. Um, it gives you a, a window into the fish life that you wouldn't get anywhere else. So the way that I use fish hatcheries now, uh, it's one of the more important parts of my management strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, uh, the, the fish culturists, those people that are employed at the hatcheries, um, th- they raise the fish uh, on every level of their life cycle, and they, they stock them in, in New Hampshire's rivers and streams. The decision about what gets stocked and the numbers and stuff is made by me. Um, so I, I try to, to basically create the best bang for your buck if you're, if you're a New Hampshire fisherman. Um, mm-hmm. in, in the past, we used fish hatcheries for restoration efforts. We would, use, we would put fish in places where we hope to jumpstart populations or to, to reintroduce populations. We don't use that. That, tool is, that isn't used as much as it used to be. Uh, the primary function of fish hatcheries now uh, is to create sport fishing opportunities where they otherwise wouldn't exist or to bolster those opportunities that might get depleted by the level of angling pressure, things Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, Also, it's really important that you don't put 
fish in a place where biological limitations would not allow them to survive, thrive, Absolutely. and things like that. Um, so, you know, you know, uh, th these guys work, you know, we start stocking fish up here in Coas County, usually in May, you know, mm -hmm. so some of our water bodies are still frozen, uh, but we like to see the water temperatures hit at least 50. Um, and then these, these fish cultures are out every day. Uh, they, they load the trucks in the morning, it's some somewhat complex mathematical equations. Cause obviously you don't count every individual fish. Uh, it's important to know you know, what a fish, what a truck can hold, uh, mm -hmm. and remain healthy. Cause there's a, there's a limit that can't be exceeded there. Uh, they calculate the distance, uh, you know, and, and the amount of oxygen in the water, for example. So that doesn't get depleted. Uh, they, they often meet either a, a conservation officer or a biologist, uh, and we get the fish in the water. And That's like awesome. I said, uh, when I first started my career, that, that was really fisheries management in New Hampshire was, was where to put the fish. And mm -hmm. it is, it has really changed very drastically dramatically since then um it, they're still an important tool it's still something i rely on to maintain fisheries here in new hampshire uh but we, we put a lot more work into habitat restoration and research now uh, i mean simply stated it, it's less expensive to grow fish in the wild than it is to grow them in a hatchery mm -hmm. uh, but there's there's still a, an integral part of, of fisheries management here in new hampshire Awesome. Yep. Thank you. And yep. also, to my understanding, you use a helicopter sometime for stocking some places. Is that true? Yeah, we do. Uh, the helicopter is used primarily to get to those locations that are inaccessible by vehicle. Uh, and, and that's obviously often referred to as remote ponds. So we have a helicopter meet a hatchery truck in sort of a leapfrogging pat uh, pattern. Um, and, and obviously, the number of fish that go in a helicopter increase if the smaller the fish are for example we mm -hmm. can't haul large fish in a helicopter we, we haul large numbers of small fish so we, we put those in places that we often refer to as a put grow and take fishery uh mm -hmm. the fish that we stock in a helicopter on day one aren't expected to be caught really for another two years mm -hmm. uh, but yeah so we use those uh it's it's very expensive we limit it to two days a year uh, but we get all of our aerial stocked fish out in two days um other than that, you know, a, a lot of times it's uh, just using a net to put fish in uh, rivers or streams. Um, obviously, I use a boat a lot. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take fish out in a boat. Um, I'll actually do that whenever I can, but specifically when I think the shoreline is too warm or, uh, you know, you don't want the, all the fish to congregate in one area. If, I, if, if our intention is to spread them out, we'll use the boats and things like that. So, nice. um, yeah, it is what a, a good resource. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's yeah. a lot of fun. And you know what's interesting, too, is that in the past, it, it used to be a secretive process. You know, if, uh, you know, we, we would look, we would look in our mirrors and if a truck was following us, we would take deliberate wrong turns or <laughs> oh we, we no. would sometimes pour. Try to confuse the people. <laughs> we, we would pour just buckets of water in a stream with no fish. And then when, when the anglers stopped to fish there, we would drive away. Uh, that has changed a lot, too. Uh, in, now in it's fact, posted, I believe, Our, our right? stocking <laughs> locations, our stocking dates, numbers, species, that's all posted online now. Uh, so it ma makes it easier for fishermen to get out for, and for sure. take advantage of it. <laughs> yeah. oh, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> um, Dave, so could you explain to me what are conservation easements? I know that's something, it's very popular down in the southern part and mid, mid part of the state. And up here, you know, we have some really large ones and it's getting to be more um, developed and smaller ones. Could you explain all all about easements? What's the good things? What's the drawbacks? Tell me all about easements. Well, it won't be as exciting as stocking fish, I can assure you. That. <laughs> or avoiding fishermen. <laughs> or, or dumping empty water buckets. Right. In <laughs> anyway, um, so if you think about land and you think about a landowner, when you own land, 
there are many rights that go with that with that land. You have the right to cut the timber. You have the right to gravel, you know, dig for gravel. You have to, all these rights you have to post permits and so forth. But you can dig for gravel. You can mine. Um, you can sell the land. You can subdivide it. You can develop that land. There's all sorts of things you can do uh, with that land. And easement is purchased by a, usually a conservation entity, the State Division of Forest and Lands, the U.S. Forest Service, the Trust for Public Lands, the, um, the Amnesty Conservation uh, Fund. Trust. Trust. Um, there's uh, Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forest owns many conservation mm -hmm, easements. Absolutely. They purchase those rights, or, or those rights are donated. If the landowner... Um, is so so much so so inclined they can donate those rights but they legally now another entity owns the rights to those lands and usually it's the development rights okay. so you take a piece of land mm -hmm. and sell the development rights that drops the value of that land because you no longer have the right to develop <clears throat> so your tax value goes down the value of the land goes down the land becomes more affordable Okay. So it makes it possible to own the land, buy, the, buy a piece of land. So if a big chunk of land is for sale and they want good organizations to own it or they want it to be protected, something like, say, Spinoff or Division of Forest Lands or even the U.S. Forest Service mm -hmm. might see that as a valuable piece of property for recreation, usually public recreation, public use, the things we've been talking about. They will lower the value of the land by buying that right. Okay. And they say, I now own that right. I own the right to development, and I'm going to extinguish it. You will never develop it, develop it on that property. Um, so it, it, it ensures that land cannot be developed on. Okay. All those rights also are up for grabs. Um, usually what happens next is negotiations. It's almost always the, the right to develop that's pretty much taken and kind of put off to the side okay. um but there's also other rights rights to have camp owners on properties rights to log and so forth. so they go through this long process of an easement writing um to decide what rights in in what percentages you're allowed to cut timber but how much well you have to have a management plan very often almost always a management plan is yeah. required okay um so all those rights are up for sort of negotiations, so to speak, based on how much money is being fronted, um, how much value has been determined <coughs> of the land and how much you want to pay for, you know, or how much they're willing to pay for rights or are the rights being donated. It's very complex. Um, and once the ink dries, it's a, it's a legal document that spells out what rights are where and who owns okay. what and who owns say power so you take for instance the connecticut lakes property and the right of development is is gone the state of new hampshire owns that easement division okay. of forest and lands not going to develop but we can cut timber but they have to follow a management plan but there's also special management areas for wildlife so if if, if you're going to harvest in those places you are required to get professional advice from fish and game to, to cut wood in those areas um certain areas you can't cut in so all the rights of the land, whether it's the harvesting, there's gravel can be mined but not sold. They can use okay. gravel um, for use on the property for management of the resource, but not, you can't sell the gravel. So they can, okay. and that's usually the case. So you can use the gravel on your land. You can't make a dollar doing it. 
Um, so it's a very complex process um, that takes a lot of time. Um, but once the ink dries, it's supposedly in perpetuity. So you need to think long and hard about <clears throat> what rights you're willing to give up because I, it, someone can sell the land, but that easement goes with it. Right. So whoever buys that land inherits that easement. So you need to think, a, try to think a little bit ahead. Um, right. What would, if I wanted to sell this land, what would ruin the sale value of it? Okay. And um, in other words, easements are forever. Once there's a piece of land that has an easement correct. on it, it's forever. Correct. Okay. So, and, and easements became popular right around the time I started. Mm -hmm. And they're getting um, their 20-year test now. Mm -hmm. They're starting to realize, hmm. There's, there's, this, it's great. It's a great deal for the public, a really good deal for the public, because it almost, almost always involves public access. So the, the Connecticut Lakes lands, right. the, um, the um, Randolph Community Forest, mm -hmm. all publicly accessible. You can snowmobile, you can hunt, you can fish, you can trap with specific, you know, permits and placings and so forth. Um, great deal for the public i can i can, you can go on those properties and do there's a whole lot of things you can do right. um, but um you know that may not work for the next landowner right so the landowner has to think about what's what's involved with this as well but it's a really great deal for the public i mean that's largely why they were created was so that they didn't want the state to own a whole bunch of land they didn't want the federal government to own too much land but when you think about it those are your two public access points. So now we have private lands, owning land, that the public has access to. Right. Um, so this conservation, this use by all, is, is a big part of that. Right. Um, so now you have these large, you know, public tracks that are, that are, that have an easement on it and are accessible. You can't just go do anything, you know, you can, you know, certain recreation might be limited, but you can go there. So they um, are definitely a good thing if you definitely want to conserve some land, big chunks. They're of very land good especially. conservation tool. Yep. Awesome. Thank very you for good. explaining that. There's, there's a lot of depth to that. I hope I did it. I really you do. You did. You did a great job. I, I learned something. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> did you? Because <laughs> it really is. It's complex. And I remember when they wrote, they came up with the easement on the Connecticut Lakes piece when the champions sold that land and nobody wanted it. It was kind of like. All these camp, all these people who'd hunted and fished there, and same with Nash Stream. Absolutely. When they, all these people just went. And what something a lot of people don't know is that the federal government owns the easement on the Nash Stream property, so the U.S. Forest Service owns that. Okay. Um, that fronted a lot of money. That put up a lot of money. The Forest Service came in with a big chunk of money, said, "We'll help you buy this, but." Right. <laughs> we have some say in what goes on here. Absolutely. It's forever protected. You'll never see a condo you'll never see a pavement truck it's for there for everybody to use um, right. but they have some say in mostly the timber management right. um, they can they can mine the gravel there and use it all over the property they cannot sell it right um, so wow well thank you for explaining that that was that was <laughs> really good you did a good job that was the <laughs> nutshell that was the big nutshell version. but they are all different uh they it depends on the landowner it depends on the the entity buying the easement what their objectives is is it spinoff is it the state of new hampshire um is it the amnesia conservation trust um what are their objectives often they're looking to link together like important wildlife travel corridor routes important fisheries important this important that they're looking for something right. and so if they see something they like they say okay we'll we'll help with this uh but we get to sit at the table right thank you thank you for 
Thank you for explaining that very in-depth part of your yeah, job. Yeah, on a daily basis, managing the timber, it's like we're cutting timber on Connecticut Lakes it's, it's, or, or on a, that property or, or in Randolph. It's not not very restrictive. Um, nice. Thank you. But you'll never see a house go up either. Good. That's good. That, that's a good thing. That's Absolutely. a good thing. And, for, you know, again, if you go to sell it, you got to remember the next guy can't do that. So For sure. Some some entities businesses are looking for that and some are not absolutely thank you awesome um all right so we're gonna move on to wayne i know we've talked about this is so good about everything that you guys do with your jobs very important aspects wayne so i know we talked earlier about um hiking a little bit going in the white mountains and could you explain more so if a hiker does want to come here and they want to hike say mount washington what preparations should they they take ahead of time? Like, what should they pack in their bags? You know, what what's that important stuff that they need to have in order to be successful with hiking and dealing with those extreme temperatures? I'll say be prepared. Be prepared, especially if it's your first time in the whites uh, or, or hiking generally. Be prepared. Do your homework. Uh, the Internet has gave us so much access to so much information. We don't have to look at books anymore. We can... Uh, you know, I want to hike Mount Washington. You can find all the routes and everything to the top of Mount Washington, of which there are many, uh, right on the Internet. Um, AMC does an outstanding job. They have a guide that you can actually purchase a book, and it'll give you the descriptions. And I use that in Search and Rescue a lot, some of their descriptions, to get an idea. Uh, the trail, if I've never been on it, to what it looks like, accessibility, steepness, and then looking at a map and, and using those two tools to conduct search and rescue missions, especially carryouts and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. But And there's a list of 10 essentials, too, and that can, again, Google that, uh, the 10 essentials you should bring with you. And be prepared, because uh, we have have three weather uh, fronts join in the whites, mm -hmm. uh, especially people out west or that are used to higher mountains or people that are somewhere else that are used to higher mountains. We have little 6,000 footers, you know, 6,288 is Mount Washington, the highest point on the east coast. That's not a very tall mountain by standards mm -hmm. worldwide. Right. But we are noted for the worst weather in the world. And it's because of those weather fronts joining at this certain point that it just it tears it up. And that's why trees don't grow on top of those mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, at 6,000 feet, at 5,000 feet, we don't have trees growing on top of those mountains. There's a reason for that. <laughs> you know, you go out west, you know, you're at five, 6,000 feet, and you still have trees. you got to get up to, you know, 9, 10,000, 14,000, and then, then we start seeing no trees. And there's a reason they don't have trees there. So <laughs> be prepared for that type of changes because I've been on Mount Washington doing rescue in July, and it's turned to snow. Oh, my goodness. Yes, mm -hmm. turned to snow. Uh, caught snow. It was raining. It was miserable. It was cold, miserable. And all of a sudden, it's snowing. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's July. It didn't snow for very long, but mm -hmm. it snowed. It was cold enough to snow. It was cold, and I had like three other layers, and I was farming those out to people that didn't have layers. Absolutely. So it, it was just, so yeah, be prepared for that. Bring a, you know, a lightweight, insulated, your rain gear. Um, something to start a fire with in case you get in trouble and you have to start a fire even in July. Absolutely. Um, yeah, those, t those 10 essentials are, are, are perfect list for, for doing it. Carry a backpack, being ready. Make sure you have enough water uh, for what you're doing. See if there's water sources along the way. If there's not, there may be water sources, but you want to filter. They make right. great filters now, very small filters. Um, if you don't want to carry that much water, you might be hiking up right beside a stream. Bring a filter because you don't want to catch Giardia or any other thing out of that water, even though it looks like the most pristine <laughs> 
water body in the world and it's a you know it's a glacial runoff coming out of this spring but the moose can poop on it up the stream and then you got <laughs> you got moose poop in your water but you don't know what's going on up there oh, so no. you know bring a filter filter your water it's just just be smart and that's the, the the people we have a tendency to rescue aren't smart and we don't mind the people that break their leg they hurt themselves legitimately it's an accident it's an accident we know that happens but when people go up there in their flip-flops and shorts uh in october and uh going for a nice foliage thing and then it starts snowing and they don't understand or the clog railway isn't running and they planned on hiking up and they were going to take the clog down or it's full and now they've lost it and they started hiking down the mountain and it's dark and they don't their cell phone died and there's just so many of the, the common things. And that, that is a common thing. It happens all the time. People don't prepare. They use their cell phone as a light source and it dies on them. And they're calling or they called us just before it died and said, yeah, we're stuck up here. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, the search and rescue manager has to evaluate. How old are you? You're in your 20s. Is it going to drop down below freezing tonight? You know, whether we're going to send resources up there to rescue you or not. But during the summer, if you're in your 20s, you're staying out the night. Because probably by the time I get rescuers there, the sun's going to be coming up. So just Absolutely. sit on the trail and uh, wait, and uh, it'll never happen to you again because you'll never let it happen to you again. Absolutely. So if you're older or younger, uh, then you have to. There's more. There's more aspects that come into the decision making. You know, somebody 75 up there um, without resources is a whole different story than somebody that can sustain themselves overnight. But. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so hiking is, is a huge, and I'm seeing an influx, I think we all see, especially with COVID, we saw a huge influx. Used to mm. see the holiday weekends with uh, trailheads, you know, miles in each direction. Absolutely. Now you saw a, a lot of it miles in each direction for no rhyme or reason other than the people were getting out. And that's how they're enjoying the outdoors, a lot of hiking. And uh, that's definitely the whites provide a lot. The the Mahusics provide a lot. We have a great place to hike. Uh, you know, the Coas Trail goes from through the whole county uh, right up to, to the border and that that's an amazing trail itself so a lot of people i shouldn't say a lot of people but enough people hike it now mm-hmm. that it's starting to get known and it shows you some other areas of coas county that nash dream area the percy peaks um yeah Absolutely. the pilot range just uh things that we don't get everybody thinks the whites i don't think the whites because i don't want to go hiking and see people we had a, a jam <laughs> in pinkham notch uh, they actually had it was going up the the face wall in tuckerman's that was bumper to bumper people you had to wait bumper to bumper up. people yeah you had to wait to get up the head wall one day i couldn't oh even goodness. believe it yeah there was people all the way up the line they had to they had to wait to get up the head wall i've never heard of that nor do i want to experience when i go on no, a hiking I you know i don't mind seeing yeah. you know a couple <laughs> people out there but i'm not going to wait on a trail to, to hike to the top uh it's yeah. just uh yeah so Absolutely. but that, that's starting to occur so we and that that's going to take on a whole different management type yeah, of thing. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, look at our parking lots. Look at going through the notches that now yeah. that you're not allowed to park on the roadside. Well, that that cur- it was created because of an uptick in hikers. Yep. You know that we never had those problems when those places were created before, but now people to enjoy the outdoors are, are gravitating towards hiking. Uh, ATVing is a big thing in the North Country. We are seeing a huge uptick in that. Absolutely. And we're also seeing some conflicts through that. So um, from people that, you know, come here to recreate, to people that live here, uh, you know, geez, Stratford's been open for over 20 years now as ATVs go. And we're starting to see uh, a lot of those people that lived there for so long are, are, are saying, you know, geez, we don't want as much ATVs as we're seeing influx mm-hmm. now because it now is becoming so popular. Um, we're seeing large tracts of land purchased just for ATV. Right. Absolutely. Which I think is smart. 
Has so. there ever been a study to see the percentage of local people that go out on our trails versus the people that come from, from out of state or not local? I don't think there's ever been a survey. Good idea. I, I believe a lot of our locals ATV for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but for different reasons too. It's, it, it's funny, you know, some people out where you live just go see their neighbor. They'll drive down the road <laughs> and they want to yeah. go see their neighbor. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I, I'm good with that, you know, yeah. but you don't want to stand on your roadside that it's always been a nice quiet thing and see 50 ATVs go by at 50 miles an hour either. Because oh, that absolutely. changes your your demographics and your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is hard to swallow for somebody that's been there for a long time when you start running, uh, you know, start increasing their road traffic Absolutely. with a recreation. For so. sure. We live right on one of the trails. It, you know, well, the trail is ac- actually the, the tar, you know, mm-hmm. for people to, to access another spot. And it's like, man, when they go by, it's mm-hmm. like, holy cow. I count them. Sometimes you see 15 right in a row, a whole crew. I'm like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Like I love ATVing. I'm, I'm so for it. Um, I like hiking as well. I'm so for that. But when you definitely, when you're in your house sitting on your porch and you're looking at all the ATVs go by, it's like, oh man, like this is loud. Right. <laughs> right. And, and you know, look at the farmhouses or the, the, the lifestyles a hundred years ago, they wanted to see people. Mm-hmm. So they put their their house right on the road. So when someone came by with a buckboard and their horse, <laughs> and I'm being serious, no, it is. It's you know, <laughs> they wanted to see that person come by and wave. And that was their connection. Uh, the farmhouses that are right on the side of the road. Now, the people that are living there, even if they're in ATV enthusiasts, they're not enthusiastic about the dirt that is accumulating on their house. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a nice white yeah. farmhouse and now it's brown because of all the extra, extra traffic. And it's because that was built during that time frame. I think a lot of them are setting back now, mm-hmm. understanding that but you know it, it's definitely different it's different we're changing yeah. uh, our management plans need to change yeah. uh, you know from and it's just from the tenure that we've been around yeah. and it's kind of crazy I mean these guys that we, we work together from for, for our careers pretty much and Absolutely. you know we've seen these changes from moose population uh, to being thriving and abundant to diving um, to land changing uses Mm-hmm. Um, to, you know, my biggest fear is, th- is the subdivision of land in Coas County because what makes it special is the large tracts of land. And that's why everybody comes here. Mm-hmm. And economics sometimes drive into cutting pieces to pieces to pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to lose that. And if we lose that, we lose everything right. that why people want to come here, why people recreate. People out right. west don't understand that you can just go out and hunt. You know, mm-hmm. go out, uh, you know, the paper company owns it, but it's open to hunting. Right. Right. And you just, you just, you don't have to ask anybody permission. There's no posted signs. Right. When I go out west, I don't understand their culture because if you step off the wrong property, oh my goodness, that's, that's it's the a big, big deal. deal. Oh. It's big a big violation deal. because that's some of their livelihood is provided for that, for animals to hunt on and, and all of that. It's, there's two different philosophies. I wish our East Coast philosophy had flowed out west with it. We would be a yeah. better nation for it and access. Yeah. Uh, for but sure. what I fear is, is big land tracks starting to get subdivided and pieced up. These easements that Dave talked about, outstanding tools for conservation. Absolutely. Outstanding tools for outdoor recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, hikers, bikers, ATVers, snowmobiling. Um, that's that's what we need to be focused on on those things and preserving what makes Coas County special. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that was great. you know when this influx of people for COVID, it, it was the whites, and, and those lines are still there. You know, they're mm. like I don't think they're going away. Yeah. <laughs> um, but even on the Connecticut Lakes property, 
where there's there's um there's some hiking trails, but it's not the Whites. It's not a hiking Would you destination. like to explain where that is? Some people might not know where it's, that is. It's the northernmost town or northernmost three towns um, in in northern New Hampshire. It's it's uh, Pittsburgh, Clarksville, and West Georgetown. Thank you. And it's the old um, Champion Lands. So Champion Paper Company, St. Regis Paper Company, and then Champion Paper Company owned it. Um, but in the 80s, you know, the paper companies started to realize they didn't necessarily own land to supply their mills with wood. They could buy wood on the open market. It was a, actually a better business model, so to speak. So they started selling off their lands. Um, big chunks of land, hundreds of thousands of acres of land going at one time. And so wow. this is one of those pieces. It has an easement on it, so it's been protected. Um, for that public access, but this summer we and right now all hunting season, we've seen an amazing influx of people just going to the woods. Driving a gravel road to some people is being in the woods, mm -hmm. um, and those gravel roads go a long way. So they do. Um, I like exploring them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's there may need to be some people management in the future um, that we weren't expecting. It was always. You know, especially up there, it's far enough away, sort of the the, the more hardy crew ended up up there, whether it was snowmobiling or so forth. But now there's no snow. <laughs> We're having mm. a tough winter. So um, there's, they are technically snowmobiling now, but more people are driving into those plowed roads. They see a plowed road, they drive on it. Mm -hmm. Well, that plowed road leads to logging and log trucks, and that's a dangerous Absolutely. mix. So it's... It's people management. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like we have it. so much. Oh, go ahead, Andy. No, just uh, getting back to people management. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So it sounds like we have a lot of good things going on up here in Coas County, and it sounds like we're starting to talk about how we were, you know, what we've had back in the past, you know, 10 years, and even current now, these new things that are coming up. I think this is great, and this definitely is going to be really good going into our, our session three, where we're going to talk about the reflection of history of Coas County. And these guys are absolutely awesome that I'm sitting here with right now. And they're the perfect people to be here to explain the the past, the present, the future. So thank you guys so much for, for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to the next session. And this is, again, this is Whitney Lewis coming from the Coas County Conservation District. And this is the North Country Conservation Series. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded at Flume Media in Lancaster, New Hampshire. Be sure to follow us on Facebook. Check out our website, www.coascountyconservation.org, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter for upcoming events. The North Country Conservation Series was produced in 2021 to celebrate the New Hampshire Conservation District's 75th anniversary. Thank you, Governor Krista Nunu, for honoring 2021 as the Year of Conservation.